Well, in the Lord's good providence, this sermon is not being preached last week. Uh, uh, As we sang the hymn, you might have noticed it's a hymn about stewardship. It's the first hymn in the section in the Trinity Hymnal on Stewardship. And if in God's providence we had encountered this passage last week, you might have thought, uh, well, it's all been rigged. We're we're, we're hearing a sermon on stewardship uh, the day of our congregational meeting. Certainly not the case. And I I can assure you, my wife can attest that before about Wednesday of last week, I didn't even know what the passage was on. I, I, that's just the way my brain works. I read through Philippians, but I didn't even know this was coming up until about midweek this week. Uh, so it's not uh, because of some agenda. It's in the Lord's providence that we have a, a sermon today on stewardship, on, on giving. And so uh, uh, take it for what it is. Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And then our scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 11. Again, sermon passage, Philippians 1, 3 to 5. And our scripture reading, which I'll read first, is from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 11. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is God speaking to you. Please give ear to what the Lord says In his word. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Now if you will please turn to the sermon passage, Philippians 1, verses 3 to 5. This too is the Apostle Paul, and he writes here, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit now. We pray for those who hear and the one who preaches. We pray, Lord, that all of us here in this room would be hearers. And so we pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would superintend the preaching of the word that you would bless it. We pray, dear Lord, that your word, which is a two-edged sword, would pierce our hearts. We pray, dear Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would correct us, that you would build us up. We pray most of all, dear Lord, that as your word is preached, you will be glorified, both by the one who preaches, but also, dear Lord, by those who hear. May we glorify you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, normally I don't tell too many stories. I hope you'll indulge me in a couple uh, today in this sermon. Uh, The first story I'll tell you is here at the beginning. The second story is at the end. Uh, And that won't become a regular habit of mine, but today, again, please indulge me in this. Uh, Thinking back, um, what now has been, uh, well, is going on 17 years ago, the terrorist attacks on 9-11. My personal experience of the terrorist attacks 
on 9-11 and the aftermath of those attacks, it spanned three distinct phases in my life. The first uh, phase of my life in which I experienced those terrorist attacks was when they actually happened. I was in the last few months of my enlistment in the military when those attacks happened. I, I sat on uh, the base around a television at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, watching uh, as the planes or the plane flew into the second tower, uh, along with other Marines who were there with me. That was the first phase of my experience of those terrorist attacks. The second phase of my experience of those terrorist attacks were when I worked for the American Red Cross in uh, North Carolina. I worked in the blood collection division. I, I was a driver of the blood mobile. I got to drive it around and, and uh, we would collect blood. And, and so I started that job after I got out, got out of the Marines. I began in uh, early 2002 uh, uh, up until the point in which I started seminary in 2003. And then in 2003, I, I, again, I saw a different aspect. I had a different phase of my experience of 9-11. And that was, of course, in the seminary days, but from 2003 to 2007. And in each of those phases, I saw Americans trying both to grasp the magnitude of what had happened in our country. And it took months and years, and in fact, is still ongoing. We're still trying to, in, in many ways, understand what happened to our nation. But also, we tried to figure out ways that we could help. Now, in the military, there was a surge of people who were enlisting, who were joining the military. There were others who were extending their time in the military, extending their contracts. They had an overall desire to fight for their country. There, there were those who would post pictures of an eagle sharpening his talons, getting ready to go to war because of what had happened uh, to us in our country. At the Red Cross, according to those who worked there uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, there were people who would, would line up football field lengths in order to give blood because they, they wanted to help out. They wanted to do something. And the only thing that they could think of doing immediately after those attacks was to donate a part of them, a part of themselves to help others. And they donated so much blood, and I think this is probably the case for, for all of the blood banks in our country, so much that they could not process it all. They couldn't store it all. And the Red Cross came under a certain amount of, 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 of scorn because they had to literally dispose of, of some of the blood that they collected during that time. And even at seminary, two years after the 9-11 attacks, according to those who uh, were there uh, in 2002... It was 2001 when they happened, the, the, the year had already begun, but 2002, it was a record enrollment. And then 2003, uh, the year that I began, it was another record enrollment of new students. Uh, they wanted to do something for the Lord, they wanted to do something for their country, and so they figured the best thing they could do was to, to, to become a minister, to fit the bill. Now what does this have to do with the passage before us? talking about 9-11. Well, I think a similar type of thinking exists among Christians more generally, both before 9-11 and in the years after, that the only way that a Christian can properly serve God is to be ordained in ministry of some form. In other words, sometimes we, we, we develop this way of thinking that it's not good enough for me just to be a, a, a faithful Christian. I've got to, to serve in some other way. I need to be a minister. I, I knew a person in seminary who, who didn't know what else to do, and he thought the best way that he could serve the Lord was by being a minister. It's not that he felt some sort of distinct call into the ministry, but, but that he felt like that was the way, the, the only way, really, that he ought to serve the Lord. 
Now, for its part, the seminary tried to help its students understand the importance of the church in a man's call to ministry, but that didn't resonate with everyone who was paying money to take classes. It's not very fun to be paying thousands of dollars in tuition only to be told, no, no, what you're doing is the wrong course for your life. You might want to choose a different career path. The truth is, and here's now where we're getting to where the rubber meets the road and the real point of this sermon this morning in the passage, the truth is there are a variety of ways for believers to serve the Lord without being in ordained ministry. Or what my, uh, one of my former pastors who had a particular type of humor, and you might not appreciate his humor, but he would say to me when he found out I wanted to go to seminary, since the call into the ministry, something I'd sensed since I was in high school, and he said, so you want to be a professional Christian? That was his way of, of sort of, in, in a way, weeding out people who actually were called to the ministry and those who weren't. There are a variety of ways that you can serve the Lord. They are no less important, they are no less legitimate than being a minister of the gospel. You don't have to be a minister in order to fit in God's church and serve God's church. And that's the point of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the fact that the church is one body that's made up of, of many different parts. And that no single part of the body is more important than another. Paul makes the point there that God has gifted individual members differently. And when they're all put together in a body, they work together in a unified way. They, they, they grow up into the head who is Christ Jesus. But even that's not the point of the sermon passage this morning. In this passage, Paul is commending the Philippian church for a particular way in which they have partnered with him in the gospel. In verse 3, Paul tells the saints at Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now he's going to give a because, the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why he thanks God every time he remembers the Philippian church. But first, he wants them to know that he regularly expresses his gratitude to God for them. He is truly thankful to God for them. And so he says, I give thanks to my God. Now this word Forgive thanks. It's the word from which the English word Eucharist is derived. It's, it comes straight from the Greek, almost perfectly. It means to give thanks. And we don't use that term in reference to the Lord's Supper in the way that the Roman Catholic Church and Anglican Church is more high church. We don't do that. And, and, and in fact, in our circles, if one, a person starts talking regularly about the Eucharist, we get a little suspicious. So we get a little worried. What's going on here? But it means simply to give thanks. It's, it's a fine word as far as it goes, but it doesn't specifically only apply to uh, the Lord's Supper, a designation for the Lord's Supper. Paul regularly uses this word when he introduces uh, uh, his letters, in the introduction uh, of his letters. He wants to encourage the Philippian brothers and sisters that he regularly thinks about them and he, and he prays for them. As you know from experience, it's good to be thought about and prayed for by others. It's encouraging. One of the ministries that the ladies of our church do is a part of the, the ladies' prayer group. Here's a, here's a plug. Uh, unsolicited. I'm not being paid to do this. One of the things that they do when they meet every single Thursday, they pray for specific people. They pray for churches. And in conjunction with the praying for people, they write a little note, a postcard. And they say on that postcard, we prayed for you this week. And it's a huge encouragement to get one of those things in the mail and, the, and to know that, that, that regularly... 
Our family is being prayed for. That regularly ministers, other ministers have commented to me when we meet for Presbytery about how our ladies are praying for them and what it means for them and for their church. And they'll post them on bulletin boards in the church because it's such an encouragement. Paul understands this. He knows this. Our ladies understand this. They know this. If you want to be a part of that ministry, Thursday mornings, 10 a.m., right back here in classroom B. They've got room. They've got chairs. They can fit you in. It's a, it's a ministry of encouragement, and that's what Paul is doing here. When Paul writes the words, my God, in verse 3, he's not talking here about, you know, you have your God, and they have their God, and I have my God. It's not some kind of, of relativism that Paul is talking about here. He's not giving credence to this religious relativism. Paul is putting an accent on the personal nature of his relationship with God. There's a sense in which, and don't take this the wrong way, that Paul understands he, he has ownership. He has, a, he has a part in God. He has a stake. He's, he's connected in some way. Paul, uh, God is not impersonal and distant for Paul. Instead, he is my God. He is close to Paul, and he is close to you and me. He is close to all of those who know and have faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't speak about God with some detached indifference, as if he's some cold and impersonal being. God is a personal God, and Paul knows God personally, and so he is my God. Just as we would speak about my mom or my dad, my, my father, my mother, we speak about God in the same way. He, he is my God. He is your God. Paul thanks his God in all his remembrance of the Philippians. If you read verses 3 and 4. This, just a three-verse sermon passage this morning. Verses 3 and 4. How many times do you, you can kind of read between the lines. It's not always the same word in English. How many times can you find the word, the, the word that uh, behind it is the Greek word for all? Four different occasions in verses 3 and 4. And the first use of the word, this Greek word for all, is in verse 3. Paul thanks his God in all his remembrances of the Philippians. This has been referred to as the fourfold use of all. What a great, grand, glorious way to refer. The fourfold use of all. The word for all or a variation of it is repeated in verse 4. In the ESV with the words always, every, and all. In all of Paul's remembrance of the Philippians, he thanks God always in every prayer for them all. That's what he's saying. This is deliberate on Paul's part. We have, to, we have to believe that. We have to trust that. He's using this over and over again. And according to one commentator, this speaks into the need for unity in Philippi and removes any sense of Paul taking sides. And we mentioned briefly last week, and we're going to get to it in later sermons, that there was a, a, the beginnings of a, a, of a division that was taking place in this church. And Paul here is speaking, inclusive of every single person in that church. He's not taking sides. He's talking to them all. He gives thanks to God for them all. And the way that Paul speaks of his, his prayers for the Philippians, he wants to reinforce to them that they are one body. Paul's emphasis on the partnership that he has with the Philippians requires unity among themselves. Paul wants them to see themselves as a single unit, not as a, an assembly of a bunch of, of different factions. And so his prayers for them, which are frequent, are always filled with joy because he remembers them fondly. Remember that joy was something that Paul might have been expected in his current circumstances not to have. 
What was Paul's situation? He was in prison in Rome. He had made his appeal to Caesar. He had uh, taken months and months to get across the Mediterranean to Rome. He's looking for his day uh, in court. And he's in prison. More than that, Paul is in chains. He references that. Paul is chained not to a wall. He's chained to one of the Praetorian guards. One of the, the elite guards of the Emperor Nero. An enemy of the church. Paul is chained to him. Paul does not know freedom at this point in his life. And he was under house arrest here. He was, he was staying in a house somewhere in Rome at this point. He wasn't, he wasn't in prison in the formal sense that we think of it. But he was in chains. Think about that for a moment. Think about the fact that at least a few times a day, Paul had to, to, to speak uh, anachronistically. He had to go to the bathroom. He's always got someone at his side, chained to him, literally, chained. He lived under the threat of possible death. Paul lived, uh, he had to deal with a severely ill Epaphroditus who had been sent to him by the Philippians, who had gotten some kind of illness and gotten very, very sick to the point we read later in uh, the letter to the Philippians where Paul thought he was going to die. All the ingredients are there for Paul to be miserable. All the ingredients are there for, for Paul to, to think of himself like Job thought of himself. Now, maybe Paul's circumstances weren't as dire, weren't as bad, but Paul had seen a lot. He had been through a lot. He could have thought that he had the perfect excuse to be miserable, to, be, uh, to, to complain, to groan. But for Paul, he has joy. And for Paul, joy is drawn from his utter trust in God's sovereignty, as one commentator put it about this. Where in the world does Paul get joy in the middle of these terrible circumstances? We have far better circumstances in our life, right? And how many people are miserable? We're depressed. Suicide rates are going through the roof. And, and we have greater privileges, greater reason for happiness in this nation than any nation has known before us. And they're all sad and, and miserable. Paul has real reasons to be sad and miserable, and yet he is full of joy. He doesn't draw his joy from external factors. He's not, his joy is not conditioned on the circumstances in which he finds himself. He draws his joy from the fact that he knows who his Redeemer is, and his Redeemer is in charge. In verse 5, Paul continues the thought that he began in verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, you notice I skipped over verse 4 here to show the train of thought. Verse 4 is almost a parenthetical. It's, it's not that it's not important. It's, it's, it's essential. It's crucial. But it is, in a sense, a parenthetical. As we mentioned earlier, Paul has a reason why he thanks God for them at every opportunity. And here it is, for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians' partnership in the gospel, according to one commentator, is arguably the crux of the letter. It's, it's the thing upon which the whole letter hinges. 
Now, the Greek word translated partnership, it's one that many of you have heard, and so I'll, I'll mention it to you. It's koinonia, so you're probably familiar with that Greek word. It's often, though not always, and, and not even most of the time, but it's often translated in the New Testament, in the Bible, as fellowship. But there are many other ways that the word is translated, and even Paul's use of the word, he uses it differently in different contexts. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Paul uses the word, he says, Therefore Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Can you guess which word is koinonia there? It's contribution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the, the chapter that immediately precedes Paul's chapter, chapter 11, which deals with when he's talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 10, verse 16, Paul uses the word twice, and it's translated participation. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And outside of Paul's use of the word, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, it's translated share. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now the word uh, is used 19 times in the New Testament, 13 of which are in Paul's letters, and about 8 of those 19 times is found in the ESV translated fellowship. So less than half of the time, the word that if you're familiar with it, you think is translated fellowship, it's only translated less than half of the time as fellowship. But you can also hear the shades of meaning and the relationship, fellowship and, and participation, fellowship and sharing, those things go hand in hand. They're not identical. They're not perfectly synonymous with one another. But they're within the same semantic range of meaning. One commentator writes, the term koinonia and other related terms are rooted in the idea of a legal relationship of common ownership. Now that's sort of the, uh, more the, 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 the Greco-Roman world's understanding of this Greek word. But it is common nowadays to speak of the need for a person to take ownership of something in order for that person to care about it. We, we, we really got to get these people to take ownership of this thing so they'll take care of it. The building's falling apart. We need people to take ownership of it and fix it up. But we hear that kind of talking and, and there's some truth to it. So in a sense, Paul is thanking them for so investing themselves in the gospel ministry and particularly for throwing their lot in with him that they have taken ownership of his gospel ministry. They understand what it means to participate. Now, on to the word gospel. The word translated gospel from which the English word evangelical is derived is used 130 times in the New Testament. And 81 of those times are in Paul's writings. Sometimes the word is used as a noun. The majority of the times it's used as a noun in the New Testament, as in the gospel according to Mark. Other times it's used as a verb, as in to evangelize. And the word is used by Paul, by Paul eight times in the book of Philippians, always in the form of a noun. And one of those eight uses in this letter is very helpful in our understanding of what Paul means here. He talks about this participation that they have in the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. In the gospel. We could say that's shorthand for gospel ministry. He's serving in the gospel. He's a partner in the gospel. Timothy wasn't Paul's son, not biologically, but as we found out in our time in 2 Timothy, Paul regarded him as a spiritual son. 
And it's important to remember that, that Timothy was already a believer when Paul uh, came to know him in, in uh, the churches in Galatia. He was already a believer when he first encountered Paul. So it wasn't because he was involved in Timothy's conversion that Paul regarded Timothy as his spiritual son. It was because uh, Timothy had become such a close partner with Paul in the gospel. Timothy's desire for the gospel to be spread matched Paul's. Timothy had completely given himself over to gospel ministry. He'd given himself over to it. And it is for those reasons that Paul sets up uh, Timothy in 2.22 of Philippians as an example to the Philippians. But it also helps the Philippians to understand what Paul means in our verse, in chapter 1, verse 5, when he commends them for their partnership with him in the gospel. As it is with Timothy, so it is with you, he's saying to them. You have partnered with me. Timothy, in one way, he's completely thrown his lot in with me. He's traveling with me. He's pastoring churches, you in a totally different way, but still valuable to the kingdom, still important, no less vital than what Timothy is doing. And so they might not be involved in the same way as Timothy and Paul in gospel ministry, but their partnership is equally valuable. And Paul feels similarly toward the Philippians that he, as he feels toward Timothy. They are a source for him of great joy. Their partnership was different, it's true. Timothy packed up, he left home uh, to work with Paul in his missionary endeavors, but their ministry was still very important, vital. As we've said, there are a variety of ways to serve. Not everyone has to be the talking head of a local body of Christ's church to be of great service to Christ and his church. You don't have to be the one who expends a lot of hot air up here on Sunday mornings to be of great value to Christ's church. Paul understands that though he, he was told specifically by God that he and Silas should go to Macedonia, the Macedonian mission, and all uh, gospel proclamation work, he understands that it involves more than just a couple of evangelists. There's more to it. And it was, the, it was as if the very first place where Paul and Silas ministered, it was as if they, it was primed and ready to participate with them in gospel ministry. So from the first day until now, Paul writes, they had joined in partnership with Paul. Now consider this, thinking of Lydia and of the Philippian jailer. When they came to faith in Jesus Christ by means of the proclamation of the gospel by Paul and Silas, it's easy to see how they would want to ensure that other people have the same opportunity they had to hear the gospel. Lydia is described as a God-fearer. She's a God-fearing Jew. She's an observant Jew. She is not a Christian when she meets Paul. But when she hears what Paul has to say, when she hears the proclamation of the gospel, she embraces Jesus Christ in faith. And whether this was spearheaded by Lydia or by the Philippian jailer, the fact is that the Philippian church immediately immersed themselves in the support of Paul and Silas's Gentile mission. They knew that they had been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ as if they had been sprinkled by water. And straight away, they wanted others to experience the same thing that they experienced. They wanted others to know Jesus Christ as they know, knew him. And so they partnered with Paul. They joined in. But what does it mean for the Philippians to be in partnership in the gospel? 
Well, certainly it means that they partnered with Paul in prayer. They, they, they prayed for him. There was correspondence between the Philippian church and Paul. Remember, Paul is writing this letter 13 years, potentially, as, as many as 13 years after he first encountered these people in Philippi. And over those years, the Philippians have supported him. They've, they've sent people to him. They've exchanged letters and correspondence. Paul visited them in other missionary trips uh, when he went back through uh, Philippi. And so, certainly, they prayed for him. They were partners with him in prayer. They partnered with Paul in his suffering. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul after Paul had been in prison. They found out he was in prison. He's in Rome. They sent Epaphroditus to him to be a source of comfort to him. They, they gave up one of their member, members in Philippi at this church so that he would be with Paul to minister to Paul while he was in chains. And they also partnered with Paul in resisting false teaching as, as Paul encourages them to do in chapter 3 of this letter. But as Paul makes clear in chapter 4 about the Philippian church, it was the Philippian church alone who entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving. No one else entered into that partnership except them, he says in chapter 4. He writes in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Thessalonica was the very next place recounted in Acts chapter 17. Paul leaves Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel there. When he's there, they send him financial assistance. And Paul is reminding them in chapter 4 that they immediately began supporting him. They immediately were aware of the great need for the gospel to spread, and they ensured it spread by supporting Paul and Silas financially. And so for Paul, in the overall context of the letter to the Philippians, the primary way in which they have partnered in the gospel, the most tangible way, we might say, in which they've partnered with Paul in the gospel is through their financial gifts. One commentator writes, It seems unreasonable to deny that the Philippians' financial contributions understood as concrete evidence of the genuineness of that response to the gospel must have been foremost in the apostle's mind as he writes these words. The Philippians' financial gifts helped to free Paul up. He was a tent maker by trade. They helped to free him so that he could focus exclusively on reaching the lost with the gospel. Time spent making tents meant time away from preaching the good news. Now, he could sit there and mend tents, make tents. He could talk to people around him, but he can't proclaim the gospel in the way that is prescribed by Scripture. Paul probably lived a very meager existence, but he still had to eat, he still had to have clothes on his back, and he had to have transportation often across the sea in order to get where he needed to go. And these things cost money. Now, more likely than not, people in the local churches put him up. But he still would want to help ease the financial burden that he caused to them. The financial support that he received from the Philippian church freed Paul from being a burden to other churches. Paul explicitly mentions this in the passage from 2 Corinthians that we read just before the sermon. Now, there's a specific reason that Paul mentions, mentions this to the Corinthians. They, they had a contentious relationship. And they begrudged some of the things that Paul said and some of the things that he did. And he said, look, I owe you nothing. You haven't supported me at all. 
I came here freely to freely preach the gospel to you. What the, what the, Philipp, what the Corinthians rather saw as a burden, the need to support a minister of the gospel, the Philippians saw as a great privilege. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.9 that he didn't burden the Corinthians while he was with them because the brothers who came from Macedonia, which would have included the Philippian church, supplied his need. The Corinthians' disposition could be summarized like this. You mean we've got to support this guy? Most of our budget goes to him. The Philippians' disposition was more along the lines of this. We get to support Paul so that he is free from the cares of the world in order for him to devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. They saw it as a privilege, not a burden. That is a difference of mindset, not a difference of reality. The Corinthians saw it as a burden, but the Philippians took great joy in the fact that they were helping to further the gospel. They saw their financial gifts as an act of worship, and so did Paul. And this is important for you. When, you. when you give to the church, do you see it as a part of worshiping the Lord? Paul speaks of their gifts this way in chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, when he describes them as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We might argue that the sacrificial system has not been completely erased from the New Testament church. So we don't offer sacrifices anymore, but we do give offerings to the Lord. We give offerings, and, and these baskets that get passed around. The language that Paul uses in chapter 4, it's language used about the Old Testament sacrifices. Those were central to the Old Testament church's worship. Now, I know, at least in part, that there's a danger of a sermon like this. There's several dangers, in fact, regarding partnering in the gospel by means of financial support. I understand that. I recognize that, that I am the primary beneficiary of your largesse, your, your giving to the church. I, I do, and, and I can't express to you how grateful I am that what you give supports me and my family. And I know that it's that it for many of you is a sacrifice. It's it's a little awkward here to be talking about, hey, you gotta give to the church. But I know that I'm the the main part of the budget. Uh, one of the dangers of preaching a sermon like this is you might think that you're being admonished for not giving enough. So here comes the second story that I told you about at the beginning of the sermon. When I was a was a child, I was a member of a Presbyterian church, not in the OPC. Uh, uh, I won't name the name of the church. Uh, but I can remember, it was a very large church. It, 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 the building was an edifice. Um, and it was one of those churches that the, the upstairs of the building was the, the sanctuary, and underneath it was a basement, which was the fellowship hall. And then it had a Christian education uh, wing of the church. It was very large. I can remember one... I don't remember when it was. I don't know if it was a Sunday. I don't know if it was a Friday night. But I can remember that... that a large portion of the membership of the church was locked down in the basement, or at least that's as a, you know, a young child, that's the way I viewed it. We had some kind of a, a meal, and we had members of the, the session, some elders who got up in front of us, and they were talking about the dire situation that the church faced because of finances. Because you see, this grand and large building, it wasn't paid off. And they were facing some serious uh, questions about the, the, the financial uh, uh, feasibility of the church going forward. And one of the things that I can remember one of these men saying, and I, although I don't remember it verbatim, he said something along the lines of, 
we're not leaving this room until we get enough money pledged uh, to, to make sure the church keeps going. We're not letting anybody out. And they, they provided food for us so we wouldn't starve to death. But, uh, but it, the, 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 it was clear. The message was clear. We're desperate. We've got to do things. Now, we are not in that situation here by God's grace. And we, we can give thanks for that. So this is not a sermon that's intended to browbeat you or say, you've got to give more. You've got to give more. It's not that at all. The reality is that you give generously. As was mentioned last week during the congregational meeting, last year was an unprecedented year in terms of what the Lord provided through the giving of this congregation. It, it was it, the amount that was given by, by y'all, and I, I attribute it all to the Lord because he has, he has, um, he has generated a, a generosity of, of spirit among this congregation that, that the giving is not reflective of the size of this church. The giving is remarkable in this church. The reality is that you do grasp what God has given to you by hearing the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that you respond to this, one of the ways that you you react to God's grace is to give. Financially give. And so all this passage, all this sermon is intended for you is to be a source of encouragement to you, just as it was a source of encouragement to the Philippians. The Philippians didn't need to be, to be uh, whipped into shape and forced to give. They were giving. And Paul's just encouraging them to keep giving. Remember that you were once lost and now have been found. Remember what it was like before Christ rescued you from your deadness in sin. Let your remembrance uh, of that be your fuel for desiring for others to be rescued. When you give to this church, not only do you support an entire family, and thank you very much, and I mean that sincerely, so that your pastor can be free from worldly care in order to devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Not only do you support an entire family, you also support the ministries of our presbytery and of our denomination. You support our home missionaries and our foreign missionaries. You support, uh, you support other missionaries, not, not many, but, but our missionary support, both to presbytery and denomination, it, it tops out at over $40,000 for this little church, which is incredible. It's remarkable. Giving financially, giving financially to uh, the church is not the only way that you can serve the church. It's not the only way that you can work in the church. There are other ways to do it. But it is a way that every person can serve, even our children you're not called to do the same thing that I am necessarily. Some of you may yet be. Lord willing, some of our, our youth will be raised up to, to, to be actively involved in, in proclaiming the gospel. But not everyone is called to that. But that's okay. It doesn't make you inferior to me at all. Not at all. And so we're not all called to, set, to serve in the same way. But even our children can serve in this way. They can give. They could pull out a quarter from their piggy bank and throw it in the offering plate when it goes by, or the basket when it goes by. That's a way that all of us can serve. All of us can partner in the gospel in that way. So here's the question. When you give, do you give with the full knowledge that when you do so, 
You're doing it so that the gospel will be preached, so that God will be glorified, so that, so that you and your brothers and sisters here in this congregation can be built up in your faith because you know that the same gospel that saved you is the gospel that sanctifies you, that causes you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you give so that people who don't know Jesus Christ will come to know him as the gospel is preached? And if you don't give for those reasons, then start giving for those reasons. Let that be your motivation. That's why you give. That's the reality of, of what the resources of this church go to. The reality is the overhead for this church, if you, if you don't count me as overhead, the overhead for this church is very little. Our mortgage payment, our, 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 our utility bills, they're, they're actually very small. The vast majority of what you give, if, if you count me in this next category, of, of making sure that the gospel is preached, the vast majority of what you give, the vast percentage of our annual budget goes toward that and not overhead. We're actually a, a pretty lean and, and mean machine here at Mid-Cities. And God is using the proclamation of the gospel uh, in order for himself to be glorified, in order for sinners to be called home, to bring them into the fold. God saved you through the proclamation of the gospel Continue to partner in the gospel so that others who do not yet know him will be called to faith in Jesus Christ and to repentance for their sins so that they too might know eternal life the way that you do. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have seen fit to use such weak and frail means as preaching to draw sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. Most certainly, dear Lord, you use feeble, frail, faulty vessels in order for your word to be preached. And Lord, we know that at least in part you do this so that you will receive all of the glory and not the one who preaches, not the one who serves, not the one who gives. Oh Lord, we give all glory and honor to you. You and you alone have called us out of darkness. You have resurrected us from the dead. You have given us newness of life in Jesus Christ. You have seated us with him in the heavenly places right now. And we're thankful, dear Lord, that you saw fit to do so by means of the preaching of the gospel. We pray, dear Lord, for this church that the gospel would always and ever faithfully be preached. We pray for our presbytery, for our denomination. We pray the same. We pray for our missionaries uh, in foreign lands, that their chief concern would be that you are glorified and that more people are added to the number of those who worship you. May our church be so filled with the sense of the glory of God and of a desire that others may know you so that they glorify you, that we continue to participate in the gospel, that we partner in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.